The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Short chapter, we're just going to read the, the whole thing to remind us of the context. Paul says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the things, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, literally destroyed, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So we started this um, section uh, a few weeks ago, and when we got to the middle part last week, we called it uh, theology as rightly as truth rightly applied. Okay? I want to explain that a little bit to you tonight. So I put in your notes a series of uh, quotations. Peter Ramus defined theology as, quote, theology is the doctrine of living well. Early Puritan William Perkins, in his famous uh, Golden Chain, 1592, said, Theology is the science of living blessedly forever. William Ames, 1642, Marrow of Sacred Divinity, says, Divinity, or theology, is the doctrine of living to God. Peter Maastricht, 1698, who, by the way, was Edward's favorite, his doctrine is living to God through Christ. A longer quote from Edwards, but it's important. Edwards says, Divinity, that is theology, comprehends all that is taught in the Scriptures. And so, all that we need to know or is to be known concerning God and Jesus Christ, concerning our duty to God and our happiness in God. Divinity is commonly defined the doctrine of living to God. So he's actually drawing there from from Ames, and by some who seem to be, it should be more accurate, 
the doctrine of living to God by Christ, which is a reference to Maastricht's um, definition. Now, why go into a a little um, historical theology to start off our lesson tonight? Well, it's because uh, the very simple fact that what you see in these quotes is for our forefathers, they did not separate theology from life. In fact, for them, theology is life. In fact, theology impacts the way that you not only think, but the way that you live. And so, um, theology has to do with absolutely everything. It has to do with living. It has to do with what you do in the morning, how you do your work during the day. So theology, which, which doesn't shape or impact the life, our forefathers would have said is not true theology then. It rests simply in the, in the sphere of, of speculation, but it's not true theology because true theology is to be lived. It's not just something you know. It's something that shapes your life. But one thing that we see in this passage with the Corinthians is that theology can often be misapplied and misused and abused. So get this this in in your mind. So on the one hand, True theology is theology that affects life to help us live unto God. In a sense, false theology is theology that is either never applied or misapplied in a way that we end up not only misusing, but end up going into error. So you remember last week, I gave you an illustration of this. Anybody remember what the illustration was of this last week? I should never ask questions about if you remember something. It's really depressing. So I talked last week about a guy that I knew in Portland. Remember? You remember Arnie? Okay. So... Good, Arnie remembers. And he's like one of the oldest people in this room. So, I mean, come on. So, uh, Bob believed in the sovereignty of God. Is the sovereignty of God true? Is that a true doctrine? Absolutely. But what Bob did with the doctrine of divine sovereignty was when he was unemployed, he didn't go out and look for work because he concluded that God's going to Sovereignly caused somebody to call me. And when then he needed to close or sell his house, left it go into foreclosure because of his unemployment, then he didn't even put a for sale sign out front because he assumed that if God wants somebody to buy his house, somebody will stop by and make him an offer. All right? So what he did is he took something true, misapplied it, misused it in a way that makes it, in a sense, untrue, right? Because that's not what the sovereignty of God is, right? The sovereignty of God is not me being absolutely passive as if I don't have any 
moral agency or responsibility. All right? So you can see, take something true, misuse it, misapply it, and it leads you into error. Okay? There are other examples that I thought of in the, uh, the course of the week. So, for instance, um, uh, does the Bible teach that the uh, husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the church? Absolutely. The Bible says that clearly. How easily is that misapplied, misused, and then abused, and then turned into error? Right? So instead of um, loving servant leadership, which is how Christ is head of the church, it becomes domineering, tyrannical um, uh, uh, authority, which then ends up undermining the very truth that it is pretending to apply, right? So the Corinthians are doing the same thing in this passage, right? So what are they doing? They're saying, well, first of all, theological point number one, we know there's no such thing as an idol. Point number two, there's only one true and living God. Conclusion, it's okay if we go to the temple and eat idol meat. So the Corinthians, uh, the Corinthian elites, if you will, were actually misapplying for self-serving reasons. By the way, I would, I would argue that most of the time when we misapply and misuse something that's true, we misapply and misuse it in a self-serving way. Most of the time we're not just simply um, um, misunderstanding, most of the time, there's something self-serving in it for us. So, for instance, to abuse the sovereignty of God is self-serving because it does what? It justifies maybe my laziness. To uh, misuse and abuse the doctrine of, of headship may simply justify my own meanness or my own controlling nature, right? So, and you can go across the board. You can think about all different kinds of truths that can be misused, misapplied, and oftentimes the motivation behind it is something self-serving. Well, this is what the Corinthians are doing. So they're taking things that Paul would have agreed with in principle, right? And then they're turning around and they are applying them in a way so that they are serving themselves. And what Paul wants them to see is that, is that they are profoundly wrong. Even though doctrinally they've crossed their T's and dotted their I's just right, the way that they implement this theology is leading them to error, and it is destroying other Christians, right? So, um, 7 through 13 is, um, is Paul is now going to start applying the truth, all right? So, um, by the way, this, this is one thing I do like about the ESV is the, the, the quote, so that you know what the Corinthians were probably saying. 
So what were the Corinthians saying? We know that we all have knowledge, verse 1. Um, uh, verse 4, and I, I forget if the ESV actually has this in quotes, when Paul says, we know that um, there's no such thing as an idol, that probably should be in quotes. Uh, there is no God but one, that should probably be in quotes. These are Corinthian slogans, these are the Corinthians' um, uh, theological um, uh, nails that they're hanging their hats on, so to speak. Um, and then what Paul does is Paul turns around and without denying it, because that, that, that's true actually, right? There is no reality behind an idol. idol or, idols are false gods, okay? Now, that's not Paul's last word about that, by the way. Okay. For the time being, it is. But he's going to get to the reality that there are demonic powers behind idols in chapter 10. Okay, so, so Paul acknowledges what the Corinthians are saying, but then he turns around and either through the use of maybe something that he wrote or a hymn or a creed um, that you see there in verse 6, um, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. We exist for him, we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him, we are through him. So what Paul does is Paul takes the truth that the Corinthians were grabbing onto, then misapplying, and then Paul turns around and he's going to do two things with this truth. So it's interesting, he quotes a hymn or a creed, and he does so, and he adds, in a sense, by quoting that, he adds a dimension that the Corinthians were absolutely missing. So the Corinthians were fine with there is one God, right? What Paul does, though, is he says, through whom are all things, and we exist for him, right? So what is Paul doing? Paul is actually showing the Corinthians that theology, theology always has two massive implications, and one is doxology, and the other is ethics, in other words, theology is not just something that, um, that you state as some sort of abstract principle out there and go, yeah, that's what I believe. For Paul, theology leads to worship, right? So this God, one true God, he is the one through whom are, or, or the one from whom are all things, right? And then there's ethical implication, and we exist for him. Okay? So the Corinthians don't have this part down. Okay? They're using theology. They're not allowing theology to shape their hearts or their conduct. Okay? Uh, and so, Paul goes that direction, and so then when he gets to verse 7, he's going to start showing how this now applies. So, how do you take these glorious truths about the Father and the Son and and then bring them into, as it were, put it into shoe leather for the, for the practical application of the people of God. This is what Paul's going to do. He's going to show us the, the ethical significance of what it means for there to be one true and living God. Okay. And he starts by saying this. Not everyone has this knowledge. Now, from 
the, the immediate context, it would seem as if Paul's saying, not everybody knows that there's but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And I don't think that that's actually what Paul is saying when he says, not everybody has this knowledge. Because in the text, it says, not everybody has this knowledge. I think that's a reference to the Corinthians' idea of what this knowledge means. So for the Corinthians, what this knowledge means is not just the content that there's one true God and there's no such thing as an idol, but also the, um, the result of that content, which is I can go into a temple and eat food sacrificed to idols because of that. In other words, this knowledge is a package of content and conduct. Paul, what Paul's saying is, not everybody thinks that way. Not everybody has that kind of knowledge. I don't take it to be a positive thing that he's saying here. I think he's actually saying something quite negative. And then Paul says, the reason why not everybody has this kind of knowledge is because some, because of their former life in paganism, that paganism still has a major influence on the way they think about idol meat and temples. So not everybody's drawn the same conclusion as you elites because there are still people that have tremendous um, hang-ups of conscience about these things. Now, by the way, it's important that we understand that Paul does not once criticize those who, quote, don't have this knowledge, nor does he try to correct those who, quote, don't have this knowledge? In other words, there's somebody in the wrong in this picture, and it's not those who are described as those who don't have this knowledge. All right? So, Paul says, speaking about these people, he says, their consciences being weak are, are then defiled. So I, I think, again, weak is probably a label that may well have originated with the Corinthians. So, so you had people in the Corinthian church who, uh, because of business associations and, and social gatherings, had no qualms whatsoever going into a temple and sitting down and through the ritual of pagan worship, the meat sacrifice, then they bring some of it over for dinner and they're just eating away. And, and by the way... Paul is not going to condone that as a matter of liberty. That, too, is important. Okay? So you have these people, and you can call them the, the, uh, the knowers, right? Or the ones with the knowledge, or the elites, or the super spirituals, whatever you want to call them. And then there are people who say, you know what? I came out of that. God saved me out of that. I used to go to that temple. I used to, I used to worship at that, uh, at that temple. I used to eat that meat as an act of ritual worship. And there's no way I could ever go back there. And then what Paul says is, those people see you sitting in the temple eating the meat, and guess what happens to them? Then their conscience is defiled. Why? Because for them, 
They don't think an idol is nothing. For them, they don't think that eating meat... Let me rephrase that. They think eating meat is an act of participation in the pagan worship, right? They they can't think about this any other way. And so when is their conscience defiled? I think that Paul probably has in mind something like this. When when they see you, when they're emboldened, when, when maybe even when they are pressured, and then they go against their conscience, that ends up defiling their conscience. I read this last week. David Garland says, this person's conscience is defiled through idolatry. It is akin to a compass being demagnetized so that it no longer points to true north. That's the idea. Now, this is, this is an important thing. And so we don't have temples and we don't have meat sacrificed to idols, but we have enough parallels in life to realize that there, there are believers who, because of certain backgrounds, because of, because of what they used to be before Christ and what they are now, in Christ, Paul's basically saying you, you have to live in such a way that, 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 that you're not putting a stumbling block before them that ends up leading them back to the very things that they know God has saved them out of. Now, verse 8 says, but food will not commend us to God. Now, this, we are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. That's probably a Corinthian slogan too. Although I don't think the ESV marks that by quotes. Is that right? Verse 8. Are there quotes there? Or no, no quotes, right? Now, <clears throat> commentators debate whether this is a slogan. It appears to be pretty sloganish, right? That, I just made that word up, by the way. Um, sloganish. Um, Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. So it sort of sounds like, you know, something you'd stick on a magnet and put on your refrigerator, right? And so um, I think that it probably is a slogan, but here it is. If it is a slogan, it's certainly one that Paul agrees with. Can food commend you to God? And when Paul says that, what do you think Paul has in mind? You're not the better off if you don't eat or the worse off if you do, or maybe I got that backwards, but it doesn't really matter. What what do you think Paul has in mind when he says the uh, statement in verse 8? He's thinking about food, right? Is he thinking about meat that has been knowingly sacrificed to an idol? Probably not. He's probably, for Paul, his food category would be what? 
clean and unclean, kosher and unkosher, bacon and ham and, right, and not. How sad, right? So we thank God for the new covenant every Sunday when we have ham back there. We're like, praise the Lord, right? Now, by the way, that's not the best blessing of the new covenant. Bacon is. No, uh, <laughs> that's not true either, but you get the idea. So, so for Paul, food does not commend you to God. It's probably a reference to kosher or non-kosher food. Right? And you're not better off if you do or you don't eat. You're not worse off if you do or don't eat. Kosher, food laws, right? Food, uh, keeping dietary laws from the Old Testament does not commend you to God, period, right? The Corinthians are thinking about it in a different way. And that is, it just simply flat out does not matter what I eat, where I eat it, or with whom I eat it. So in other words, they were taking something that Paul would have been in fundamental agreement with and applying it in a way that Paul would not have been in fundamental agreement with. And we know that because of the way that he continues the argument. Notice verse 9, he says, But take care that this liberty of yours... By the way, I don't take that to, to be a positive. I, think, I take that to be a derogatory comment. This liberty of yours, this authority of yours this authority which you think you have. You have to be careful. You have to watch out to make sure that this so-called authority of yours does not do what? Does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That is the one who is determined not to eat. Now... Paul's about to give a really serious warning here. It's very possible that this term authority or liberty is maybe a a catchphrase that the Corinthians were incredibly fond of. You have to remember who you're dealing with. You have to remember the larger context of 1 Corinthians. And it is this idea that that because they had certain knowledge, they had certain rights to do what they wanted to do. Wow. You know, we are a culture of rights. Right? Everybody's talking all the time about my right to do this, my right not to be microtransgressed or whatever they... Micro, my, my right not to be uh, the, on the receiving end on my college campus of hearing something that I don't want to hear. Right? That's a right. Okay, well, this, this, is a, this is the stupidest thing ever. To have this idea that, that because I know something, it automatically gives me the right to do what I want to do is not a biblical ethic. It's not a biblical perspective. And yet here are the Corinthians, and 
Paul says, you have to understand that this so-called authority of yours can turn around and become a stumbling block. Now, we, we think of stumbling block and, um, and, and we think of maybe something that trips somebody up. That's not the, the idea of a stumbling block. The word for stumbling block is a scandalon, something that scandalizes somebody. It's something bigger than just tripping somebody up. It's actually putting a stumbling block in front of them. Uh, We're going to see Paul's going to use really, really strong language to describe what happens to one of these who actually is stumbled because of your use of your so-called rights based on your superior knowledge. Paul says, verse 10, Basically, if they see you, they're going to be emboldened to go against their own conscience. Actually, the, 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 the statement has a, a peculiar irony. If they see you sitting in the temple... Now, now, by the way, Paul is not saying, so make sure they don't see you. That's... <laughs> That's how we think, right? Okay, well, if they see me and I, they stumble, then, uh, then what I got to make sure I do is go incognito. That's not the point. Paul says, if they see you sitting in the temple, you who have knowledge, there's going to be, and there's a play on words here, You'll build them up all right. But you'll build them up for their destruction. Paul is a play on words for the word edify, right? So love does what? Love edifies. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. Um, But Paul says here that um, it has a New American Standard do it so if someone sees you, verse 10, who has knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened? Literally, will not his conscience be built up to eat things sacrificed to idols? Now, at that point, if you just put a period there and just say, okay, full stop, the Corinthians would have said, yeah, that's what we're after. We want to set these people free from all of their hang-ups. We want to set these people free from all of their matters of conscience. I mean, we want them to enjoy the full liberty of, of, of what it means to be set free in Christ, right? You can almost hear them just saying, this is exactly what we're after. Notice what Paul says. Verse 11. For through your knowledge... He who is weak is destroyed. The brother for whose sake Christ died. Paul says, here's the problem. You're not building somebody up in love in order to help them. By your knowledge, you're actually destroying somebody. 
and not just anybody. You're destroying a brother for whom Christ died. This is, this is by the way, this is an incredibly serious warning. What, what Paul's saying is, is that the weak doesn't just take a bite of meat and thus say, well, I shouldn't have done that. The picture that Paul is, is painting for us is that the, 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 the weak is, is, in a sense, emboldened, and he is then overcome, as it were, by the smells and the tastes and the environment. And what ends up happening is that his soul is dragged away back in to the very idolatry that God had saved him from. When Paul says destroyed... This word is used in terms of eternal destruction. So, well, hold on a second. What about eternal security? Paul, Paul, Paul should have picked a different word. No, Paul picked this word for a very specific reason. So, Listen carefully, please. At this point, Paul is not concerned for some precise articulation of the perseverance of the saints. You understand that Paul's not always driven by the same theological debates that drive us. And there are times where what we end up doing, and and, and if, if you were here for Hebrews, you know this, what we end up doing is we end up taking a passage that has that has teeth. And then because we don't like the way that passage fits with with our theology over here, instead of trying to figure out why this passage has teeth. We try to defang the passage so that it obviously can't mean what Paul seems to say it means. You, 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 you tracking with me? Right? So, so we love, um, my sheep hear my voice, they hear me, they follow me, I give eternal life to them, they shall never perish. We love that. And then we take that and we say, okay, that is now my controlling verse for all the verses that I don't like. You don't have the prerogative to do that with God's Word. You don't get to say, well, I like these verses because they bring me comfort. I don't like these verses because they scare me. Or you can't say, I like these verses because they fit my theology, and I don't like these verses because I don't see how they fit my theology. It's never your prerogative. And so what we end up doing is we end up jumping to theological conclusions about a text instead of stopping and asking, what is the point? I mean, I wonder if it actually has ever occurred to us that that Paul did not write his 13 epistles in order to defend Reformed theology. 
Do I think Paul was reformed? Of course. But maybe he didn't always go about it in the way that we orthodox types are comfortable with. Let Scripture speak for itself. And so when Paul says, destroyed, and every time he uses Apollo, Apollumi, it means eternally destroyed, don't do what F.F. Bruce does. I like F.F. Bruce. He's okay. He says, the RSV rendering of Apollumi in Romans 14, 15 is preferable to its rendering of the same verb in the passive by is destroyed here. He says this. It is not the man's eternal perdition, but the stunting of his Christian life and usefulness by the wounding of his conscience when it is weak that Paul has in mind. So, of course, that makes perfect sense. It can't be eternal perdition when it seems to mean eternal perdition. What destroy must mean is to stunt your life and your usefulness. Doesn't that make a tremendous amount of sense? If I'm going to use the word, if I'm going to use a word to describe stunting your Christian growth and usefulness, do you think I will use the word destroy? It just seems a little over the top, if that's all Paul's talking about, right? So I was really happy when I saw Alan Johnson. He says, but can this theology fit the strong language of perishing or the problem of idolatry that this passage addresses. He says, despite the tension it causes in some theological systems, it seems better to see the problem as serious enough to, in some sense, impinge on the person's eternal destiny. So what are you saying? I'm not saying that Paul is saying that a person can lose their salvation. It's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that Paul, like other biblical writers, will speak using, okay, you ready? Phenomenological language. That is the language of the way things appear. So, Paul is not overly concerned about ferreting out at this point, um, well, was this person really saved to begin with? He has a situation that is, that is um, depicting church life where you have this guy who is professing faith in Jesus and for all practical intents and purposes and judgments of charity, he is a Christian. Did you get those qualifiers? For all practical intents and purposes and judgments of charity, he is a Christian. Okay? That's what he says he is. That's what he appears to be. Phenomenological. And then that person sees somebody in a temple eating meat sacrificed to idols. That represents 
old life to him, he's emboldened to go back to that. And as he goes back to that, he becomes re-immersed in that and then rejoins the perishing. And will perish. Why would Paul say it that way? Because of what is at stake. Because of what is at stake. If 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 we don't if we don't acknowledge, as it were, um, a, a, a situation. I mean, let's face it. We've been a church family long enough to know what this looks like. Nobody sits there and says, okay, I know you say you're born again. Do you have a picture proving it? What do we do that? What do we do? For all practical intents and purposes, and according to judgments of charity, you tell me a Christ, you're, you're a Christian, I tell you I'm a Christian. I'm not a drunkard, I'm not a fornicator, I'm not a drug addict, I'm not this, I'm not that. I'm, my, my life actually looks like a Christian life. Right? What are you going to believe about me? What am I going to believe about you? That you're a brother. You're going to believe I'm a brother. You're not going to say, you're a brother, but I can't see your heart and you might not really be. Nobody says that. I mean, unless you're, like, really rotten person. And then what happens? That brother then apostatizes and goes back into his former life. And the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does not just simply say, well, he prayed a prayer, he's okay, got fire insurance, doesn't matter what he does back over here because he's a carnal Christian. That's a lie. If he doesn't persevere and endure to the end, remember, there's a beginning and there's an end. There's a, a starting line and a finishing line. The Christ, Christian life is a race that is set before us, and you have to run and you have to cross the finish line. And if you don't cross the finish line, guess what? You don't enter into God's rest. Now, we have, we have verses that help us make sense of this from a, in a sense, from a distance. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they'd have been of us, they would have remained with us. But in order to demonstrate they were not of us, they went out from us. So the ones that quit the race, by the way, you never know about those who quit the race. You don't. I'm not saying you don't know if they never get back in the race. But I'm saying someone who quits the race, guess what? As long as they're still breathing, you're still praying. Okay? Right? But they quit the race. They don't finish. They go back to their old life. They, they go back to, and how many times have we seen it? They go back to the things that held them before they professed faith. And the Bible does not give us any hope that that person as a true saving profession of faith. Period. 
By the way, I don't make any apologies for that position because that simply is not just a biblical position, but that's been the position of, of Protestant, evangelical, and Reformed churches for centuries. This whole idea of the easy believism and carnal Christianity and pray the prayer and you're okay, that's, that's, that's not only recent, it's a lie. And when we have texts like this and say, well, it's just about stunting the Christian's growth and their usefulness, guess what we're doing? We're, we're defanging the passage, and the passage is meant to, 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 to sting us. And so Paul uses language like this, and he uses language like this so that we realize how serious it is. You know, this should, this should actually put fear in our hearts. That we would live in such a way that would embolden somebody to go back to their old life. Right? I mean, we, we, have, we have a situation where a man has not only gone back to his old life, but he's gone back to his old life in spades. Just all out. Fully immersed. You know what he's doing? He's emboldening family members around him to go back into that life with him. Paul would say, you're putting a stumbling block in front of somebody that is going to end up causing them to be destroyed. Take it seriously. Years ago, the elders were discussing whether to use real wine in communion. Remember this, Steve, Charlie? Remember we had this discussion? You think, uh, of course, Jesus used real wine. I have no doubt Jesus used real wine, all right? I don't think Jesus used Welch's grape juice. He's used real wine. And I was so strongly leaning towards at least giving people an option, all right? And by the way, this is no criticism towards anybody that does, does it this way, but I'm just telling you how this passage impacted me. So I went to a brother that I love who, who used to be a very, very, very bad drunkard, and God saved him, and he had been absolutely sober for well over 20 years at that point, and I just sat down with him and I just said, let me ask you a question. Would it bother you if real wine was used at communion? And he says, let me think about it. About a week later, his wife came up to me and she was, she was irritated with me. And she was irritated with me because, she said, he has not stopped thinking about it since you asked him. And so, I sat down with him and I asked him, what do you think? 
And he says, to tell you the truth, when I should be thinking about the Lord Jesus pouring out his blood for my, the forgiveness of my sins, I'd be thinking, I think I'm going to take the real wine. And all I'd have to do is smell it. To me, that was enough. That was enough. Is that enough for you? Or you, we've got rights. Jesus used real wine. Again, I... I preach at churches that use real wine, and I'm forced to drink like that much wine, and it still burns my stomach. So I don't care about that. What I care about is a brother that could have been caused to stumble. Is it possible God could have given him grace and it could have been no problem? And the answer is absolutely. That could have happened. Absolutely, God could have, could have worked in a way that he, that he says, you know what, I, God's given me grace and strength, and I think I'm fine with this now. Uh, I wrestled through it, blah, blah, blah. And, and if that would happen, then that's, but that's fine. But what if that didn't happen? Paul says, you're destroying the brother for whom Christ died. By the way, do you get, do you, do you get the, the contrast Christ died for him, and you can't even give up idol meat? Right? You can't even be inconvenienced? You can't even make a sacrifice for the very one for whom Christ died? Paul then says, it's a sin against a brother to wound their conscience. Verse 12, And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, Guess what you do? You sin against Christ. You sin against Christ. Now, Paul may well be implying something stronger than what we pick up with just in sinning against your brother, you sin against Christ. He may be implying that, that, that you sin against Christ in such a way that is so lacking in love that you destroy yourself. Stop and think. If the weaker brother is led back into his old life and is destroyed, what about the one who so carelessly puts the stumbling block in front of him? Does not our Lord Jesus actually tell us about those who would cause one of these little ones of mine to stumble? It would be better for them to have a millstone hung around their neck and cast into the sea than to cause one of these little ones of mine to stumble. So here's Paul's principle. Verse 13. 
by the way, when he says, um, when he says you wound their conscience, the idea is you're striking a blow against it. Okay? You're beating it down in a way that it becomes absolutely ineffective to help them. Then here's Paul's principle, verse 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again, so I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now, let me just say, this is a radical statement, verse 13, and there, there, there's a level of hyperbole in it, right? If, if idle meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat ever again, right? So, but, but again, what is Paul doing? Paul is actually demonstrating how earnest and how passionate he feels about this. If I know that this is going to cause somebody to stumble, I'm, never get, I'm not even going to get around it ever again. In other words, because Christ died for that brother, I am more than willing, more than happy to sacrifice my so-called rights on the altar of brotherly love. All right, let me wrap this up in one minute. First, Christian liberty is not the liberty to do whatever we want. Just isn't. Garland says, Christianity does not require the Gentiles to become Jews, but it does not allow... Gentile Christians to continue to be pagans. You can't just say, hey, I got liberty. Okay, you, you, don't have, you don't have liberty to live with your girlfriend. You don't have liberty to cheat on your spouse. You don't have liberty to cheat on your taxes. You don't have liberty to abuse your children. You don't have liberty to kick your dog. You don't have liberty to do a lot of things. The revealed will of God tells us exactly what we can and cannot do. Christian liberty is not a free pass to do whatever we want. And to be honest with you, and this is just, you know, my own carnality probably, but I feel like I've had it up to here with younger Reformed Christians who think that Christian liberty means that they can talk however they want and use foul language and drink as much as they want and do basically whatever they want. That's nonsense. No one's ever seen Christian liberty as the right for me to use profanity. Well, Luther used profanity, not the, not the way you think. He was creative. Number two, Paul's concern is not offending somebody. Talked about this last week. It's not just, that offends me. It's having them follow our conduct in a way that ruins them. In other words, this passage is not a club for those who want others to conform to their behavior. I don't watch football on the Lord's Day, and neither should you. Do you watch football on the Lord's Day? That offends me. So what? Get thicker skin, <laughs> right? This is not just about being offended. Okay? 
Number three, we need to be conscientious about our conduct. And we need to operate out of love, not a sense of superior knowledge and personal rights. We need to take care of each other. And then finally, number four, theology is always more than right doctrine. It is right application. It is living to God through Christ. Right doctrine, wrongly applied, is error. And so, knowledge puffs up. That's the tendency. Love edifies. Love builds up. And one of the things that we sometimes forget is in our Bibles is that Jesus says there's one distinguishing mark among the children of God. One distinguishing mark among his disciples. It's actually that they love one another. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in God, we thank you for this passage. We pray that we take it to heart. We pray that you would expose the spiritual pride in our own hearts and show, Father, where we put ourselves above others, in front of others, because we want to do what we want to do. We pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you would convict us where necessary and help us to bear the fruit of love. And we ask this for the glory of the Lord Jesus, who died for us. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.